This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, February 21st, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. So if you open your Bibles to Genesis 9, we're going to read a lot of verses, and I'm going to read a, read a lot of names, and you're going to have to show me a lot of grace because they are odd, but I'm going to get right to it because it's a, it's a big text. In Genesis chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 18, and I'm going to go all the way through chapter 10. So hold on to your hats and be gracious. Verse 18 says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rapheth, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanum. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with its own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Habilah, Sebta, Ramah, and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Echad, and Kelna, and the land in the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum and Anaimim, Lehabim, Nephtuhim, Pethrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Stick with me. Canaan <laughs> fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemrites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Ger, as far as Geza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Edema, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And to Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, 
and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in these days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almoded, Shelef, Hazaramabeth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obol, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is God's word. It would cause any pastor to question whether they should read every verse in the Bible. (laughs) But we did. Now... At the end of chapter 9, um, combined with chapter 10, it's kind of one of the strangest stories in Genesis, combined with perhaps one of the most boring chapters in Genesis, or so it seems. Um, but the end of chapter 9 there is a, is a great story, uh, an important story, because it serves to remind us, um, I think, of, of something that's incredibly essential The nature of the story that's presented there is, I think, one of the best evidences for the genuineness of God's Word. What I mean is that it's about real people. Real men and real women uh, are portrayed, and what we see is within a few chapters, the last righteous man on earth um, falls, and the resulting fall that affects his family. Um, As one commentator put it, we see that anyone can sin and everyone does. Moses, who is recording this, um, probably could have done a much better job of hiding the imperfections of the ancient heroes of our faith, but he doesn't. And that's because this is God's story, and it's told by God, about God, and for God. And so there's no effort to excuse the sins of men Because their failures are the very things that offer the best backdrop for the riches of God's grace. So as you read the Bible and you see these messed up people, um, we see ourselves. And it should bring us great comfort and actually confidence, I think, in the Word of God and His grace. The second, I think, greatest evidence for the genuineness of God's Word um, comes in chapter 10 and the incredible detail that's there. Um, This national genealogy of sorts Uh, often called the Table of Nations here in Genesis 10, um, along with what amounts to another genealogy in Genesis 11. This actually exists, and this would uh, be affirmed by even um, non-believers, exists as as one of the most accurate records of prehistory in the expansions of people across the world. Um, That's why in verse uh, 18 and 19, I think even said in the beginning too, that the sons of Noah went out from the ark Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and these three were the sons of Noah from these people, all the earth was dispersed. And so you see a record of like where all the peoples came from, and how they spread out, and where they went, and this record is actually very accurate in many ways. Um, The narrative of Genesis um, comes to life, and its genuineness is, I think, upheld because it's real history unfolding in real time with real people. And real events. And I think I think I put a map. Did I, Eli, did I have that map up there? So you can find maps like this uh, over um, all over the internet. And it kind of just gives an explanation as to everything kind of 
spread out in the different peoples, whether they be the peoples of, of, of the Russian peoples or the Egyptian peoples or the Arabic peoples or even the coastland northern peoples. And you can begin to see how everything moved out and where all those sons that were listed there, I will not read them again, well, I will second service, um, how they all spread out. And you can see um, where the sons of Ham, um, which would be the orange, where they remained. And the sons of Ham, you can see localized largely around the Promised Land, where Israel uh, is today, where most of the Old Testament takes centers on. Um, but taking these two stories, these two kind of pictures uh, at the end of Genesis 9 and the Table of Nations, we learn more than just the depravity of man and the history of man. Um, taken together, we actually see kind of three kinds of people that are portrayed in the human race. And what we're going to see is there's the cursed people, there are the blessed people, and then there's the people I'm going to call the invited people. Um, and so as, as we see the story in Genesis 9 unfold, I want to kind of jump into it a little bit. Um, just like Genesis 8, if we recall, was uh, kind of like a second creation um, of sorts where, where the world was covered with water and then the the land began to appear, and the animals came out again, and so like you have a second creation. What you have in the end of Genesis 9 here is uh, a picture of like a second fall. It's almost a repeat of what had happened in a different way, obviously, but a very similar way. When Noah exited the ark and he had this newly created world, um, God at the beginning of Genesis 9 made a covenant uh, with creation, with all of mankind. He made a promise of what he was going to do, how he's going to relate to these people's um, partially probably to um, you know, absolve the fears that uh, Noah might have when he saw the first rain cloud come. And his promise uh, was marked by this uh, rainbow, this bow in the sky, and his covenant didn't require Noah or mankind to do anything. Um, it actually just required them to believe what God would do and that he would do everything. Um, very different than the original covenant and a picture of the covenant of grace that we enjoy through Christ today. But God's promise to save, or not to condemn, and it was really to save as well, uh, didn't depend on man's ability to behave. And that's really good because we see immediately after the covenant, like right afterwards, similar to Genesis 2, like, hey, don't eat this tree. Genesis 3, they eat from the tree. You see right after this promise, don't worry, it's not dependent upon your obedience, it's a good thing. God made a promise that way because he immediately falls into sin and reveals his rebellious bent, that being Noah. Now the timeline's uncertain. Uh, what we know is that his sons had, had some amount of time to uh, have some children, and so their families are growing. Uh, it's assumed that at least Canaan, uh, Ham's son, has been born because uh, Noah obviously identifies him. But within a brief time, we see their hearts are all revealed. Um, having retired from a career of boat building, which he built all of one big boat, it was a really nice one, um, in his retirement, Noah decides to take up viniculture and winemaking. Okay? So he's like, I think I'll plant a vineyard. I'll move to eastern Washington and, and, and do that. So he plants a vineyard, um, makes wine, gets really drunk, and passes out in his tent naked. And we might be inclined to go, you know, the guy maybe deserves to enjoy for a little bit. But really, the, the briefness with which they talk about it and the, the, uh, the amount that they talk about drunkenness later in the Old Testament uh, reveals that 
This is a sinful act that he does. And so, the man who had walked in righteousness and preached righteousness, the spiritual giant who had done that for 600 years in his 601st year or maybe 610th year, somewhere in there, falls. And he reveals in doing so the very things that God had made a covenant with are still broken with mankind. Mankind still, in his relationship with creation, is broken. Right? He, he indulged in that which he ought not. He abused, if you will, a gift of creation, which is wine. But that opened up the door to show how broken the relationships with one another still were. Noah's sin opened the door to his family, namely his youngest son, to sin against him. So, Ham, his youngest son, uh, discovers his father in his tent. And he goes and he tells his brothers, the Scripture says. And at this point, it's really unclear exactly what Ham did. And if you were to read different scholars, there's all kinds of very conservative interpretations and then some really crazy uh, interpretations that I think are, are borderline offensive. But they base it off of how they understand Scripture, that he maybe just mocked him and he maybe um, actually violated him in some way. It's not clear. Um, we can infer that whatever Ham did, it was not good, and it contrasted with what his brothers did. And in, in some way, um, his brothers had acted to cover his shame, to cover his nakedness. Ham had uncovered his nakedness in the sense that he had somehow further humiliated his father and somehow glorified his shame. Now, we can only guess what he may have done. Uh, perhaps it was just some immature mockery. Uh, perhaps he was really intentionally trying to knock down his dad, like the supposed righteous guy who had listened to God. And he's like, now's my chance to knock dad down a few pegs um, and, and show everyone that he's not who he says he is. The truth is, and I've said this before, the circumstance offered opportunity to reveal what was in Ham's heart. It really wasn't about Noah at all. The circumstance didn't create what was in Ham's heart. It didn't cause. It just created the opportunity and the environment to bring out what was already there. And I think it's a sobering thing for all of us, especially in a world where we can see all kinds of leaders and all kinds of people that we respect fall. That the sin of our hearts is often revealed by how we respond to other people's sin when they fall. Especially those in leadership. And how tempting it is for us to mock and how easy it is for us to do that online and otherwise. Reveling in the brokenness of men and women caught in sin and not recognizing that what's coming out of us is actually quite dark. And so we see that it's not too different than Adam and Eve's fall, the second fall, if you will, that unfolds here in the beginning or the end of Genesis 8. In the first fall, you remember that Adam and Eve were ashamed of their own nakedness and they tried to hide themselves. And even though they felt fearful and ashamed, God didn't shame them. God didn't, didn't um, he certainly condemned their decision, but he didn't shame them. And come with shame. Noah, on the other hand, wakes up and he discovers what Ham has done. 
How he discovers that, I'm not sure. It's likely that if he went and told his brothers, it spread. If he has children, they're all talking about what Grandpa Noah did. So he wakes up and immediately proceeds to curse Ham's son, Canaan. And by making a prophecy about Ham's son, um, Noah is basically declaring that sin that Ham has clearly revealed or made manifest, it's going to continue in his family. It's going to follow him, if you will, down his line. And Noah's curse is, should be viewed more as a prophetic description of what sin's going to do, not the cause of, of what happened. So Noah isn't like causing them, like, well, now Cain is messed up. He's just saying this is, this is what's going to happen, declaring it prophetically. Essentially, sin, his decision to mock his father, is going to impact generations. And Ham's family, according to the curse that Noah uh, declares, is going to be characterized by slavery. Servants of servant, by slavery. Okay, so put that on the shelf. Be characterized by slavery. Now, the curse of Canaan is really important. And you go, why did you read the end of chapter 9 and then into chapter 10? That's a lot. Well, the curse of Canaan is really important to understanding what is happening in chapter 10, which is not just an explanation of where the peoples go. We learn um, that the genealogical history, we learn like the descendants of Ham from in chapter 10, verses 6 to 20, so a big chunk. And what we begin to see, and if you read those names, and if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, but if not, I'll help you out, what you see in the list of Ham's descendants are actually some of the greatest enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament. You have the Egyptians. Realize that's one of Canaan's sons, right? Or Ham's sons. But you also have from Canaan the Canaanites. You have the future Babylonians and many others which I'll name. And you think about the Israelites listening to this story and, and having this record to, to read it would have great meaning for them as they were coming out of Egypt, out of servitude under Egypt, and coming into this promised land. And God had said more than once that this promised land, the land of Canaan that they were going to, was populated by a people. And he had told Moses that he was going to take his people to Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is Exodus 3, but other places as well. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivizites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, right? In the same list. These people that were descended from Canaan, cursed line of Ham, were the very people that Joshua would lead a conquest against and that they would ultimately kill and some would be enslaved, but mainly they would be slaughtered. And they were an evil people. If you read about the history of the Canaanites, everything from the perversion sexually and the religious practices to the sacrificing of their children, they were just a yucky, ugly people. But as you read the genealogy, you see in the eyes of the world, the cursed descendants of Canaan were actually seemingly a blessed people. At least in the eyes of the world, right? So if you look at verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod, which is funny that we usually use that name as a pejorative, right? You Nimrod, like, 
He's a mighty man, thank you, right? It's weird. But he fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Doesn't say that about any other descendants. This is the cursed people. It continues. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's like a, a saying that went on for, for ages. One that they're familiar with, it seems, hundreds of years later. Then it says, verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erak, Akkad, Kelneh, and the land of Shinar, which we'll later read about in Genesis chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel was built. From that land went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Probably heard of Nineveh, the story of Jonah. It's a mighty city, capital city of Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and resin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. So Canaan's grandson, Nimrod, basically built the very first kingdom that grew into the very first empire. The cursed people. It says, Nimrod was a mighty man and a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that makes it almost sound like God is approving, but you probably should read more like he was arrogantly in the face of the Lord, making a name for himself for the Lord to see. Far from being approved by God, Nimrod is the first ruler of sorts who endeavors to bring man and animals under his power, to subjugate them to himself, to under his rule. Think about this. This is the cursed line. And the cursed line is seemingly healthy, wealthy, powerful, successful, renowned, cursed. According to the historical record, if we were just to base it off of Genesis 10 and actually going into the future with the different kingdoms that came from his line you would see the cursing of Canaan looks more like a blessing. But in truth, if God's word is true, which it is, I believe that it's probably better described as slavery to emptiness without hope. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, the curse of Canaan's apparent blessing is that they will always be devoted to building their own kingdoms, even enslaved to it. All they have to hope in is basically themselves and their own strength, which invariably fails. They will always be competing and comparing with someone else's kingdom, and they will always be at risk and at fear of losing their own. Ham's blessing, or Canaan's blessing, will come from whatever they can scrap together in the world, for there is nothing beyond it for them. All security, all success, all satisfaction, which comes from this world, is ultimately meaningless because it all passes away eventually. For whatever your kingdom is built on, if it's not God, it can be and will be taken away in time because of some change in the economy or death comes to us all. And when death comes... For those of the cursed line of Canaan, that's it. That's it. That's the curse of Canaan. Slave to that, that emptiness. A slave to that, that search for satisfaction, for contentment, for value, and never actually being able to achieve it. 
Now, unlike Canaan, Noah curses Canaan. Then he turns and he blesses Shem. Verse 21, um, well, it's not the, the blessing itself is in verse 26. He says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant. It continues to, in Genesis chapter 10, to kind of explain the line, if you will, of Shem and what comes. And it starts in 21. It says, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. So Shem is the father of all the children of a man named Eber, which in Greek would be Heber, which the word Hebrew is derived from. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian at the end of the first century, wrote that the Hebrews were called after Eber. In other words, Shem is the ancestor of the Hebrew Jewish people. That's where the Jews come from, from this line of Shem. And so you can imagine Israel hearing this, hearing Shem being blessed, Canaan will be a servant, and thinking, all right, we're about to walk out of this wilderness into this promised land full of descendants of Canaan. This is what God promised. They will serve us. Because it's got to be frightening a little bit as they see these huge peoples, battle-hardened armies, grand kingdoms, and they're walking with their pitchforks because they're not really warriors yet. But God said these people would serve. God said these people would fall. And even though I think that there should be some confidence in that prophecy about the Canaanites, where they really should be taking their comfort and their confidence from is the blessing. See, if you read it carefully, Shem actually isn't the one who's blessed. Noah doesn't bless Shem directly. Noah blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. The prophetic blessing is actually a declaration about who or whose God Shem's is. The Lord. The power of blessing for Shem comes from Shem being in relationship with God. That's the blessing, which would mean much to the Hebrews. Historically, though, Ham has the better lot. Historically, Ham has the better land. Ham has the better, Canaan has the better everything. Canaan has a big kingdom, many kingdoms that descend from him, even an empire. And Shem, at this point, has a little one. And the truth is, when our kingdom, little k, is small, and the kingdoms of the cursed are big. We begin to question whether we really are the blessed people, don't we? I don't really feel blessed, Lord. I can barely pay my bills. Yet, Joe Pagan over here is doing real well. What's going on? It's tempting to believe that the absence of greatness in the world and even the presence of great suffering is a sign that God is not coming through on His promise. Perhaps Israel felt that as they're wandering around the wilderness in tents, walking into the first city to come to, Jericho. Oh, 
Jericho. Man, these guys have done pretty well for themselves. It'd be nice for us to have a big castle fortress like this, Lord. But see, God never promised greatness in our kingdoms on earth. He didn't even promise Israel that. He promised to make His kingdom great. And He promised if we sought His kingdom, then we'd have nothing to worry about. And that one day, we would enjoy His kingdom completely. In a way that is immeasurable to whatever we might be able to enjoy or endure here. I take great comfort from verses like 2 Corinthians 4. And I hope you will as well. Verse 16, we're called, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. So we must never forget that even though Canaan has a kingdom, Shem has an inheritance. Even though Canaan has a kingdom right now, Shem has an eternal inheritance. And even though the Canaanite people are great right now, God's people are promised a greater greatness. And this will really never fully be realized in any of Shem's descendants, less one. One descendant who will truly enjoy and experience and know what it means to have perfect relationship with God. Can you guess his name? Jesus. As you read Luke 3, which is the genealogy of Jesus, doggone it, guess who it leads back to? Shem's line eventually leads to Joseph through David. And although Joseph was Jesus' adopted father, he was also his direct heir. Heir to the blessings. The blessing would truly come through Jesus. That's what would be experienced. So we'll put that on the shelf for a second. Now in the beginning I said that the story of chapter 9 and, and chapter 10 um, has three categories of people, right? So who are we? Are we the cursed? Are we the blessed? We're the invited. See, the cursed, as I said, are those who, like Canaan, are enslaved to the world, enslaved to sin. Hostile toward God and in love with the world, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will journey through life seeking heart-level satisfaction and never, ever, ever, ever finding it. But they will try. They will go from Savior to Savior, hoping to be saved from the hell they've created in their minds, which is no one loves me. That's a hell people try to be saved from, so I'm going to put my hope in this relationship. No security, so I'm going to do everything I can to make lots of money. No respect, so I'm going to take control and build a career so you respect me. Savior to Savior they'll go, and they'll find them dissatisfying every time. They'll find that there's no hope beyond this world. 
They will find and live in fear of not finding meaning or, or losing whatever meaning they happen to find in this place. In truth, apart from Christ, we are all descendants of Canaan. Apart from Christ, we are all descendants of Canaan. And, and even if those who are apart from Christ experience an, an earthly prosperity, whatever that means, they will have no eternal inheritance. Nothing to hope for beyond this world. Nothing that can't be taken away at any moment. But then you have the blessed people, right? The blessed people are, as we go from the Bible here, they're the Jewish people, the people that were chosen by God to be loved by God. It is through the Hebrew people that God chose to unfold His covenant promises that would ultimately bless the world. And in Deuteronomy 7, this blessed people are told, like, I'm not choosing you because you're awesome. In fact, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're special to me. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possessions out of all people who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the smallest. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. You'll not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And God did keep His covenant. He kept His covenant with Noah. And He kept His covenant with Shem. And He kept His covenant with Abraham. And He kept His covenant with Noah. And He kept His covenant with David until finally it was fully realized in His Son. So ultimately, we are not in Christ, the cursed people. We're not the blessed people because that really is localized around one person. We're the invited like Japheth. See, Japheth is told that he would experience blessing through Shem. That is no different than us that Ultimately, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The descendant of Shem. God's invitation for relationship comes and would be ultimately opened up to the entire Gentile world. They would be invited to become partakers of the same promise that came through that one people. And today, we experience the blessing of being loved by God through coming under Shem, which in Hebrew means the name. Our blessing comes not because we're awesome, not because we deserve it, but because we are in relationship with the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the greater Shem, if you will. See, there is, as I said, only one descendant who fully experienced the blessing. A 
of a perfect relationship. One descendant who obeyed God's Word perfectly. One descendant who enjoyed the Father and listened to Him and did only what the Father told Him to. One name in which every knee shall bow. One name given under heaven through which men will be saved. Through which anyone may have relationship with God. We experience relationship with God through taking refuge in the tense of the name, Jesus. Those who seek after the world, you will get everything the world has to offer. You can get it all. But it will not satisfy, and you can't take it with you you will miss out on the true greatness that God promises. And even if the unbelieving Canaanite ends up having a better lot in this life and bigger land in this life and just an overall better everything, they don't have the better inheritance. I've been struck by this verse in Psalm 37, which is where the title of the sermon came from, which is, Better is the little. Better is the little that the righteousness that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Better is the little than great abundance that the wicked may have. Because I've got God. Or perhaps better said, God has me. In Christ, we are invited to experience the blessing like Japheth was invited to experience the blessing as he came under Shem. And the blessing isn't experienced by working hard to make our tents large, but by making them little so as to fit inside of his. In Christ, we find ourselves content with lower, with little, and with less. And why is that? Because we have a Savior, the eternal Son of God, the descendant of Shem, who in order to obtain the blessing and the inheritance that He wanted to give me, became what? Little and lower and less. And so therefore, since He humbled Himself to enter into mine, to become little enough to be with me, I can be content with lower and little and less because in Christ, I have everything. In Christ, through His kingdom, if not today, someday, I will be taken higher, I'll be made bigger, and I'll be given more than I could possibly imagine. See, the kingdom of God is not for those who are big and mighty and strong. The kingdom of God is simply for those humble enough to admit they're little and they're weak and they need a Savior. Jesus pleads with all of us. He pleads with you. He pleads with me because we're apt to forget as we try and build these kingdoms that aren't worth anything and will not last. He pleads with us to stop working to try and obtain blessings. Stop working to try and build a kingdom that never is going to last and just receive His invitation and take refuge in Him which will last for all eternity. And you'll no longer fear losing anything.
because you have everything. I'm going to close with a couple of verses out of Psalm 16, which is my psalm of the year. Not because it was 2016, though that's where I started and went, hey, this works. As you take communion today, and this is a, an experience that we continue to, to remind us, this is, this is the climax of why we're here. This is really the most active way for you to go, I'm coming into Jesus. I don't worry about my tent. I just want to be in Jesus' tent with Jesus. This is our refuge. This is for those who are in Christ, who, who look at the world and go, not interested. For I know where true value is. I know where true joy is. I know the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for me. And I know that, that I'm undeserving and I'm little, but my Lord became little for me. The bread is His body broken for us. The wine and juice is His blood shed for us to remind us of how little we are, but how big we're going to be. But Psalm 16 has been a comfort to me as we sit and we look at the cursed people, if you will, who seem to be very mighty. Dare I say, the Nimrods everywhere seem to have it all, right? And it might be health that they have that you don't. It might be wealth that they have that you don't. It might be prosperity they have that you don't. The Nimrods. They look mighty, but they don't have an inheritance. My prayer is that you will look at your inheritance as beautiful. As little as it might be, knowing that there's a mighty inheritance waiting for you. Psalm 16 says this, Then I would invite you to close your eyes and just try and listen to this psalm. And I'll close in prayer after I read it. And truly hear what God says to you. These aren't my words, these are God's words. Psalm 16 says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. For the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, I pray that that will be something that drives itself deeply into our hearts.